Stacey Cabrera, and this is Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. If you look up on Google poems about America, you'll find way more than you want to. Uh, but many of a famous poem has plenty to say, obviously, about this country for good or for ill. Maybe one of the most famous poets regarding American identity is Walt Whitman. Uh, he was America's first-class poet. Uh, his comprehensive, daunting, extended work, Leaves of Grass, is probably his most famous. The work itself is huge. It incorporates about 383 poems by the time of the final deathbed edition of it. And it houses probably the most famous of all, called Song of Myself. As described, Leaves of Grass is a hymn celebrating the whole life of the nation with the poet identifying himself with male and female, young and old, white and black, slave and free, healthy and handicapped, and animals too. Speaking in a mystical biblical tone, he sang of the body and the soul of night, earth and sea, of vice and virtue. It's meant to represent the growth of his country to give a voice to a composite electric democratic personality to embody America's soul, the mystical reality of national consciousness. As a member of the Romantic movement, women's work demonstrates value of the use of intuition and feeling over logic and reason for accessing truth, and often the poet's awe of nature inspires deep optimism for the progress and perfectibility of man. The caveat, though, is that man must come to recognize his connection with and through nature, which at Whitman's time, and even in our own, is already deeply embedded in bureaucracy, social norms, and pressures and a decided disconnect from the natural world for anything other than, you know, camping or holidays. Uh, really here, it's the poet's job to inspire that love of the return to nature once again. While Song of Myself really is a song of Whitman's self in that it aims to celebrate his own inspired living and his connectedness with nature, it's not simply the individual in a, a specific existential way. In fact, he spends a lot of his poem identifying with others of mankind and even with nature and its inanimate self to give us a sense of a holistic, essential oneness. There is something really Eastern about what he, he's doing in his philosophical approach. He often refers to both male and female, young and old, like I said, objective and subjective experiences as a way to highlight the similarity through the difference and a unity in that holistic perspective. In engaging this multiplicity in an attempt to draw that unity, he gets at not just the heart of American, but also the heart of humanity and even in a more broad sense at living. Whitman's early discussion inspires connection back to the understanding of substance, particularly living substance, as explored by Aristotle in his work on the soul. Metaphysics suggests that substance is a composite of matter and form, or body and soul, which cannot at any point truly be separated, or the thing would no longer be the thing as defined. Thus, both are essential qualities and inseparable, so long as the thing continues to exist. While Whitman isn't advocating for soul as purpose here, it shows recognition of the importance for both the thing to be a thing at all, and forces recognition of not just the thinghood of others in an objective sense, but also forces the recognition of, of the subjective as well. Aristotle also advocates in On the Soul for a divine spark, a definitive and substantive link between man particular and God through telos, in which part of man's purpose is to live well, and to do so, he must not only sustain his objective self, think material body, but he also has to nourish and then flourish through the use of reason, of thought, of feeling, of intellect, of connection, um, which is that which we share with God, not only in a sense of pure act, but also in pure intellect. 
Uh, as a result here, man and God are in a sense on equal footing. As Whitman suggests in the claim that nothing, not God, is greater to one than oneself is. However, if you look further into the interpretation of this particular line, nothing, not God, is greater to one than oneself is, it might also suggest a more existential presentation. If we look at applying the philosophical perspective of, say, Kierkegaard, not only can we rectify this line, which could suggest something akin to the absolute relation to the absolute that's so fundamental to Kierkegaard's religious stage, but this would also recognize some of the dis dissonance that uh, exists within the above analysis of Aristotle with statements that Whitman makes in particular stanzas of the poem that voice a disinterest in thinking. He claims in certain refrains of Song of Myself that despite hearing and seeing God and everything, that he is yet to understand God, not in the least, and continues even deeper in it to say, nor do I understand who there can be more wonderful than myself. So like Kierkegaard's De Salentio in Fear and Trembling, there is a major disconnect from being and understanding that logic in essence fails to encapsulate God, that our reason is wholly unfit for an endeavor like this. This is not inconsistent with Whitman's romantic philosophy at all. Uh, thus, intuition, feeling, awareness, and a presence becomes actually the way to experience God. It can't be a mental act at all. It's directly contrary to the philosophy that's explored through Aristotle above. But instead, man must simply recognize his oneness with himself, with his fellow men, with that which exists currently, and is present in the world around him, and only through that will he experience God. So it's not so much that God is elusive, or hiding, or covered from our sight. It's the opposite. He is ever-present, and it is our fault that we've lost God. We covered him by looking outside for him, outside of us, above us, not for us. By stopping that thinking, by recognizing that logic will fail in this instance, we can then move from that moment of the paradox and into the religious. Much of that transcendental harmony is recognizable in the interactions of the three species of Malachandra and the first of C.S. Lewis' space trilogy out of the silent planet as well. They clearly recognize the importance of each other in the hub for the wheeled universe, giving worth to each perspective as they bring to the dynamic whole. The Sorns provide the objective and scientific intelligence that chronicles the collective knowledge and facts of Malachandrian history and culture. The Harasa provide the artistic analysis and exploration of the deeper themes behind those objective and scientific intelligences. And God forbid I pronounce this word wrong, I apologize. The fifth Triggy, the third species on Malachandra, provide the basic and artisanal necessities for living themselves a form of art. They don't fight. They don't wage war. The, they present values that are necessary to a functioning whole society, and so they recognize that they are all ill-equipped in specific things, and then they defer. As Hoy, one of the characters that is a Harasa in the text, always says, the Saroni could say it better than I say it now, but not better than I can say it in a poem. However, we have had major problems with doing this as a species, a human species, even though we're all the same species, unlike these um, species on Malachandra. And as the Saroni in the book reveal, we are problematic in that we cannot rationally float ideas on a different blood and learn from the perspectives beyond that of our singular species, man. No matter what Whitman says, those perspectives can, can't really be enough, and while they should lead us to recognition that we can progress through experience of the world, 
rationalism then maybe not required? I don't know. Or in fact, maybe it's forbid. But Whitman very much appeals to me in the way that the philosophies of Hegel do. I enjoy a level of holism and a connectedness to all things. And I think that we as humans fail to appreciate that the world goes on around us and that we're not disconnected from it. It's funny that life sometimes seeps in towards us and then we get annoyed by it. There are spiders all over the inside and outside of my house. And I hate when we get overrun by ants in the summer and it happens every year. Uh, we often try to sterilize the lives we lead within our own walls. Uh, and But then we go camping and sometimes that can be a nuisance when it's hot or it's sticky or full of bugs, etc. We spend tons of money on glamping because we want the benefit of being away and quote-unquote outside without actually really being either of those things. Not having internet now is a huge inconvenience. We've been stuck in our houses for months now. Um, we live too fast. Too connected, but not really connected. But we might actually be more isolated than we realize. In fact, it, it will come as no surprise to anyone that I probably think too much and spend a lot of my time in weird abstractions rather than in the moment of true experience. Has my own moment come and did I fail to recognize it? Am I in the Kierkegaard demonic position of the ethical while f but I feel happy? Am I actually internally anguished by my own need to think everything through? I recognize that language has its faults, that it's imperfect, it's inter-mediating, you know, and ultimately, it's broken and disconnected from that true experience that I'm trying to describe. Maybe Whitman has something important to offer me personally here, and maybe that's why I like him so much. And maybe it's, you know, in these times when I need that wisdom most, and why, you know, C.S. Lewis's book, despite some fundamental disagreements that I have with aspects of his religious view, why they still appeal to me. I really need a deeper connection to myself, to others, and to this world. There's so much beauty and goodness in it, but while I sit here trying to find it and abstract it out so that we can share in a piece of it, competing to own what we think is our limited commodity, we fail to recognize that it's limitless, it's simple, and sometimes it's often staring us right in the face. Obviously, if Leaves of Grass is a poem about America broadly, there are, of course, poems in it that are explicitly about America, including one called I Hear America Singing, which goes like this. I hear America singing, the varied carols I hear, those of mechanics, each one singing his as it should be blithe and strong, the carpenter singing his as he measures his plank or beam, the mason singing his as he makes ready for work or leaves off work, the boatman singing what belongs to him in his boat, the deckhand singing on the steamboat deck, the shoemaker singing as he sits on his bench, the hatter singing as he stands, the woodcutter's song, the plowboy on his way in the morning, or at noon intermission, or at sundown, the delicious singing of the mother or of the young wife at work, or of the girl sewing or washing, each singing what belongs to him or her and to none else, the day what belongs to the day, at night the party of young fellows robust, friendly, singing with open mouths their strong, melodious songs. Now again, Whitman's poetry is great. It's celebratory and positive and hopeful and makes that American dream of your work being meaningful and leading you to a happy, successful life sound all the more real and achievable. But remember that his voice is largely a privileged white voice. That's why I say when I look at the positives of things that we have to temper that. 
And while he may have been a homosexual and did actually experience some discrimination as a result of his poetry being a little bit risque for the time, he has been largely or at least historically celebrated and beloved as the American poet. There's a massively internal optimism that is in almost all of his work, at least the works of his that I've read and analyzed. And again, we have to return to the fact that there are substantial segments of the American population that have not classically benefited. And as a result, that eternal optimism almost flies in the face of the real oppression. But who can speak to that? Well, we hearken back to Langston Hughes, who we've talked about in previous episodes. We've spent effort on his poetry, and in fact, many of them speak directly to America or for the cultural population of which he was a part. So here is uh, one of his poems, I Too. I, too, sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen. Then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. And while I'm not sure if this poem is a direct response to Whitman himself, whose poetry claims to speak for everybody, well, here you go, a response. Unlike the carpenter, the shoemaker, the plowboy, the mother, the wife, and the woodcutter, the voice of black America goes unspoken for in the optimism. It's left behind. It is not the American dream, or at least it is a specifically classified middle-class white male America. Women aren't really included in it, other than by legal connection to that middle-class white male. Even poor white males are largely left out of this. We still sweep homelessness under the rug and only talk about it enough to say that we see it as a problem, but really only as an inconvenience to the cleanliness of our vision of the streets or of our cities or our economic prospects. I mean, how much does homelessness lower property value in a given area? But then when people start giving out solutions, everyone hits the NIMBY button. Not in my backyard. Langston Hughes asserts this voice and places it in the conversation with a promise of they'll see. While they may be sent to eat in the kitchen, they too sing America. And when read in conjunction, it's a beautiful and poignant statement to react to Whitman's optimism. It's optimism countered by further optimism. It's just a shame that, even, that it even had to be made in this assertion tomorrow when it should really have just been already. While Langston Hughes was over there being all optimistic and hopeful for the voice of his particular culture, well, there were definitely some more pessimistic voices also. And while the B generation as a whole wasn't exactly pessimistic, there are definitely a few who fueled that kind of anti-conformist sentiment to an ugly level. The B generation actually comes out of a lot of the conflict that followed the Harlem Renaissance poets, out of the sentiment of the world wars in particular, uh, a reaction to the standardization that followed the factory model that was designed in war-era economy and became the new philosophical approach of this country. I'd contend it's probably the most dangerous philosophical view created in and through our country, um, for which many of our biggest problems still today have sprung up. The B generations are in a lot of ways the original anti-conformists. It is because of them that we had the hippies in the 70s and their anti-Vietnam protests and free love societies and all that, the gothic culture of the 80s, the grunge movement of the 90s, kind of sort of the hipsters of the early 2000s, and so on. The beat generation was doing the anti-conformity thing before it was cool, right? How hipster of me. 
In fact, they weren't really generally cool, at least not at the time, and not to the people who were around them. The only one that really got widespread notoriety was Jack Kerouac, at least outside of anti-conformist and outside of Beat Generation circles. Uh, he was really the first to use the phrase Beats as a name for his group of people and their particular artistic ideals. Kerouac was fortunately gifted by being decent to look at, and so people were just generally more affable towards him, and so his stuff tends to be a little bit more mild in its criticisms to society. For him, life was just an experience, not good or bad, just an experience. He experimented with it too, and chronicled it in his poetry, and in particular in his novel On the Road. But thanks to him, though, the generational artistic movement gained a lot of traction and allowed for free expression that came with poetry of somebody like Allen Ginsberg, which was a colleague and a counterpart to him. Unlike Kerouac, though, Ginsberg is a lot more off-putting. He's more crass in his style. He was more crass in his dress. He was kind of, kind of what you'd expect, you know, somebody to look like. And he played a much different role in social criticism than Kerouac did. While Kerouac was more interested in free expression and the feeling of the beats of the jazz music and clubs that he went to and made his poetry kind of live and improvisational to match that, Ginsberg was really busy using his poetry for political ammo. I really wish I had time to teach his work Howl. It's a huge poem. It's super long. It's really very interesting, though. And it does actually have some of the elements of optimism in it but I just haven't found the right place in my classes for it. Maybe this podcast will do it. I don't know. We'll see. I got to fill some time in the summer and all that with stuff, but you know, it, I'll kind of bracket this thought for later. Um, file that in my mind for future reference. But anyway, it also has this poem called America it's in fitting our theme here, and it's pretty heavily contrasting the voices we heard in the earlier two. America, I've given you all, and now I'm nothing. America, $2.27, January 17, 1956. I can't stand my own mind. America, when we will end the human war? Go fuck yourself with your atom bomb. I don't feel good, don't bother me. I won't write my poem till I'm in my right mind. America, when will you be angelic? When will you take off your clothes? When will you look at yourself through the grave? When will you be worthy of your million Trotskyites? America, why are your libraries full of tears? America, when will you send your eggs to India? I'm sick of your insane demands. When can I go into a supermarket and buy what I need with my good looks? America, after all, it is you and I who are perfect, not the next world. Your machinery is too much for me. You made me want to be a saint. There must be some other way to settle this argument. Burroughs is in Tangiers. I don't think he'll come back. It's sinister. Are you being sinister or is this some form of practical joke? I'm trying to come to the point. I refuse to give up my obsession. America, stop pushing. I know what I'm doing. America, the plum blossoms are falling. I haven't read the newspaper for months. Every day somebody goes on trial for murder. America, I feel sentimental about the Wobblies. America, I used to be a communist when I was a kid. I'm not sorry. I smoke marijuana every chance I get. I sit in my house for days on end and stare at the roses in the closet. When I go to Chinatown, I get drunk and never get laid. My mind is made up. There's going to be trouble. You should have seen me reading Marx. My psychoanalysts think I'm perfectly right. I won't say the Lord's Prayer. I have mystical visions and cosmic vibrations. America, I still haven't told you what you did to Uncle Max after he came over from Russia. 
I'm addressing you. Are you going to let your emotional life be run by Time Magazine? I'm obsessed by Time Magazine. I read it every week. Its cover stares at me every time I slink past the corner candy store. I read it in the basement of the Berkeley Public Library. It's always telling me about responsibility. Businessmen are serious. Movie producers are serious. Everybody's serious but me. It occurs to me that I am America. I am talking to myself again. Asia is rising against me. I haven't got a Chinaman's chance. I better consider my national resources. My national resources consist of two joints of marijuana, millions of genitals, and unpublishable private literature that jet planes 1,400 miles an hour and 25,000 mental institutions. I say nothing about my prisons nor the millions of underprivileged who live in my flower pots under the light of 500 suns. I have abolished the whorehouses of France. Tangiers is the next to go. My ambition is to be president, despite the fact that I'm a Catholic. America, how can I write a holy litany in your silly mood? I will continue like Henry Ford. My strophes are as individual as his automobiles. More so, they're all different sexes. America, I will sell you strophes. 2500 apiece, 500 down on your old strophe. America, free Tom Mooney. America, save the Spanish loyalists. America, Sacco and Vanzetti must not die. America, I am the Scottsboro Boys. America, when I was seven, Mama took me to a communist cell meetings. They sold us garbanzos a handful per ticket. A ticket cost a nickel, and the speeches were free. Everybody was angelic, the sentimental about the workers. It was all so sincere. You have no idea what a good thing the party was in 1835. Scott Nearing was a grand old man, a real mensch. Mother Bloor's the silk striker, Zewig Gleiblich, made me cry. I once saw the Yiddish cry. order. I once saw Israel, Israel after playing. Everybody must have been a spy. America, you don't really want to go to war. America's them bad Russians. Them Russians, them Russians, and them Chinamen, and them Russians. The Russia wants to eat us alive. The Russia's power mad. She wants to take our cars from out of our garages, or wants to grab Chicago. Her needs red readers as digests. Her wants our auto plants in Siberia, him big bureaucracy running our filling stations. That no good. Ugh, and make Indians learn read. Him need big black niggers. Ah. Her make us all work 16 hours a day. Help. America, this is quite serious. America, this is the impression I get from looking in the television set. America, is this correct? I'd better get right down to the job. It's true, I don't want to join the army or turn leads in precision parts factories. I'm nearsighted and psychopathic anyway. America, I'm putting my queer shoulder to the wheel. When I read this one, I see a man sitting on a couch, clicking a remote, and scrolling through channel after channel of news cycles and advertisements. Each separate image is a new channel or a new ad. The war, the atom bomb, tons of criticisms of the insane demands of modern living, the political turmoil, the economic trade, the machinery of society, the murders and trials of revolutionaries and protesters, the racial violence and the inequalities. It's a lot to think about. He's experiencing intellectual sensory overload in a way, a lot like we do today when we consider how our individual decisions play into political decisions, environmental decisions, and so on. I talk about this a lot with my students because it really does plague me. Today, because of the extensive information that's out there regarding almost every minutia of our experience, we're no longer only making decisions in the moment as for the moment. Uh, I will give a personal example. I like to make my own clothing. Um, generally this is for, you know, the sake of a relaxing hobby and something to do as a creative outlet, 
Uh, but because the process is kind of slow and it requires some leisure time, this process usually takes me longer than I generally have need to consume clothing, you know, as you wear clothes every day. As a result, I do what most do. I, you know, purchase clothes from clothing stores. Uh, my decisions, my buyer decisions, are mostly governed by two factors, price and how it looks. Um, you know, recently, though, about a year ago, um, my husband showed me a news story. And here you had this situation of a poor family in New York. They were having kind of the unfortunate need, obviously, to search through discarded items for things like clothing. Um, especially because New York is pretty expensive, especially in, in the town area or, you know, city centers. But in this story, you have the individuals of these family, this family, and they're being interviewed and they're talking about their experience and just the disheartening fact that a lot of times when they open up these bags of discarded clothing, you know, you hold up the clothing and it's just totally destroyed and slashed through and unwearable at that point, or at least not, not, you know, good protection. And this is stuff that they're getting from like really well-known popular clothing stores, but they find them. Last season's designs shredded, totally destroyed and left in the trash. They're not even donated. And the implication of the story here is that you've got these stores who would just prefer to completely waste all of the production, all of the stuff that they make and sell, to send it to landfills, than to have a single homeless person sporting their last season's trends. Is it poor advertising? But as somebody who cares about waste, I hate this story. Nearly all of the places I go for affordable and quick clothing are on this list of, of stores that do this kind of thing. And this doesn't even account for the poor working conditions of the clothing makers in the other countries uh, that likely exist on the other side of the dynamic. It, you know, it's thanks to add to my own ethical woes here. Nor is that even considering the unethical and un environmentally detrimental farming practices that probably occurred in the early parts of the fabric creation process. And there are probably other things like that as well. Chemicals that are added to the dyes that now leach into my skin or in the water or the air go on to cause problems with our oceans, and the list just goes on from these decisions. Now you factor that spiral into every decision you make today about things that seem, you know, relatively harmless. I know that the consumption of oil in my car pollutes and contributes to greenhouse gas problems. Luckily, my car hasn't moved in a few months, but even still... I also know that the chemicals used in non-organic and even in some organic crops cause serious birth defects. They can cause cancers or other illnesses and that they can cause problems in the soil for generations. I know that animals in most shelters are euthanized and sometimes even abused. I know that buying things at a big box store is cheap, but for some of them, their employment practices are terrible. I know that many of the products I buy for my hair, things like body soaps and body lotions and sometimes even my makeup are tested on animals cruelly. I know that single-use plastic is ending up in a giant Texas-sized island in the Pacific. And because I know these things, it has become, or at least by most early ethicists' arguments, my moral duty to act in accordance with what is right in all known instances. To know and to ignore, that would be Soren Kierkegaard's demonic. So thanks, Ginsburg, for putting all the problems forward here. America, this is quite serious. America, this is the impression I get from looking at the television set. America, is this correct? I'd better get right down to the job. It's true I don't want to join the army or turn lathes in precision parts factories. I'm nearsighted and psychopathic anyway. America, I'm putting my queer shoulder to the wheel. 
And while Ginsburg does the complaining and the external finger-pointing, he's not reprieving himself from the criticism. Like he says, it occurs to me that I am America. I am talking to myself again. Despite the bad, we recognize the interconnectedness of ourselves here to the problem. Can I be held responsible for actions that someone else takes? No. But in a way, I have fed into a system that has allowed for those actions to occur. Or I have somehow tangentially benefited from the system that has made those things possible. I may not have made the actions myself, but unless I choose to speak and act out against them, I'm simply being part of the problem. It's like the bully in the hallway. I see a kid getting bullied by another kid, pushed and shoved, verbally accosted or whatever, and I do nothing. I walk away in the other direction. I've not bullied the kid myself, but my choice of nothing, which, by the way, doing nothing is still a choice, has produced an environment in which those actions can and will continue and could potentially flourish. I have actively, by claiming inactivity, contributed to this issue. Humans are all about inactivity, and they, they claim it, it's a good enough of a remover, when it's really not. Not making a decision, choosing not to choose, is still a choice. We call this tacit responsibility. Are you as bad as the bully? Maybe not. But you're not good. So Ginsburg points out the problems here, is at least being vocal. Though we'd have to go into his personal actions to see if he's doing anything to help actually do anything about the things he's pointing out. Is he protesting or making different choices? Is he facilitating relief, charities, and stuff like that? Pointing to the problem is only the first step. Slacktivism, right? Click the like. So in the same way that Whitman's white voice of optimism is tempered and extended by Langston Hughes, we can do the same thing today with a multiplicity of other voices we have now. Luckily, people are speaking up these days, and a lot of artists are echoing and further extending the injustices being portrayed here by Allen Ginsberg from a relative station of white privilege. But a few years ago... My classes went really crazy about Childish Gambino's song, note the theme, This Is America, aptly titled, and it fits really nicely with what we've got going on here, so here it is, a little bit. This is America, don't catch you slipping now. You're slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Look how I'm living now. Police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry them. The music video itself is a shocking one. It's full of violent images. You got South African culture, the apartheid sentiments. You got the white horse of the apocalypse that he's got running through the background. You got many consistent phrases. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. And get your money, black man. Attest to the constricting culture that many of our white authors have given voice to as well. But this goes even a step further in the same way that Toni Morrison's Beloved does. The actions can't be judged on the same level. Don't catch you slipping now, as if a black person has to be twice as good as white people just to be on the same level. 
And once you get your money, sit down and shut up, right? You've made it. And it's probably pretty weird to be a black man with money who has to hear it poorly from both sides of the situation. The song ends. You just a black man in this world. You just a barcode, eh? You just a black man in this world, driving expensive foreigns, eh? You just a big dog, yeah? I kenneled him in the backyard. No proper life to a dog. For a big dog. Still black, even if you have money. Think of the stigma Gatsby, you know, I know this is a poor substitute for thinking, but think of Gatsby and the stigma he has with being from West Egg and the sentiment of superiority that he's still getting fed from East Egg no matter how much money he makes. You're still a black man on a different playing field and the resentment from the black community is, well, when, you know, you've got your money. This goes to the same sentiment in Beloved, the idea of being too proud, as Stamp Paid talks about it at the end of chapter 25, that the people in the neighborhood don't like people who are prideful, who have things, and there's like this, almost this tinge of jealousy and stigma that comes with this thought. I mean, I've listened to my own students talk about the fine line of being black in a predominantly affluent white area of L.A., I've heard them talk about the struggle of identity of being at our school and then having to talk and act a certain way, and then the way they are with their friends here versus the way they are with their friends back in their hometowns, especially uh, those that are on permit with us. The struggle to compartmentalize that way, changing how they act and dress to avoid the stigma on both sides, I can't imagine, because I don't need to. That is privilege. I'm going to save this idea for the final episode next week, but I'm just going to put it out here now since I'm really feeling it at this moment. All of this series has me super uncomfortable a lot of the time because these are not culturally my stories. I'm doing an injustice inherently, and I know this, trying to tell them because I just don't... I'm not there. So next week I'm going to ask the question, and I'm going to discuss it a little bit. Who has the right to tell these stories? I know I'm doing a disservice to them, but do I also have a responsibility in some way to shed light on them? In some way, is it necessary that I use a stance of my privilege to bring those stories to my cultural audience? There's lots of questions on this. So last week we looked at the opening chapters of Beloved Book 2, and today we're looking at the ending chapters of Beloved Book 2. It's a short book. And so is the final one, book three, which will be the basis of our next week's final episode. Book two has been mostly about perspectives and their effect on the present, so we've been privy to the first-hand stream of consciousness of several of the characters now. Not only Seethe, but also Denver, Beloved, Stampede, and now we're also getting more of Paul D. from the basement of the town church that he's using to stay away from 124. But note that he hasn't been able to run away entirely. He's still close enough. Something is keeping him here, like a tetherball at the end of the rope just circling around the center point pole of 124. In chapter 24, Paul B.D. begins by recounting, in somewhat of an actual chronological order for the first time, the plans that went down for running away from Sweet Home. He recognizes his own skepticism throughout the situation, and it's clear in it all, um, more than, I think, some of the other slaves and the influence that we get from each of on the other's thinking. He first lays out the plan as it was designed, the perfection of the plan. Who would run with who and to where? What items would they bury and then dig up that might be useful uh, uh, for help on the run? What time each would go and what considerations they have to take for their stealth? Uh, A lot of really advanced thought and a lot of really deep consideration going on here. However, things don't work out perfectly to the plan. 
Eventually, Paul D. ends up running through a huge list of butts that ends pretty tragically for everybody. You get Sixo's death, Paul F., Paul A., Hal's craziness and the butter, Seed's inability to go according to plan because of her pregnancy and the situation of trying to tend to Miss Gardner's every moment. Paul D. recognizes that it is because of the trauma of this failed plan that he hates the idea of plans, especially those for a future. This is why he's been really successful in living moment to moment, why he closed himself up to the world, to possibility in other people. To open up to others means that there are expectations, future plans, and responsibilities in time and space. To stay closed is like being a walking ghost. You're just not there, really. You're anywhere simultaneously, which is, I guess, freeing? Or at least I think many people would think so. You're free of responsibilities and you're free from the potential of loss, the potential of anguish and tragedy. But I think Paul D. might actually say otherwise by the end of all of this. It's not living so much as it is passive existing. So when he got to 124, and while the symbolism of the scene suggests it's beloved that opens up the rusty tobacco tin for Paul D., it wasn't, it was Seethe. And we start to hear him talk about putting down roots and staying there, having a future with the woman, no longer running from things. This is when they start telling their past stories. And now there is a responsibility not only to your own past and your own story, but also to theirs. And Paul D. now realizes the capacities. There's something slightly existential in this realization, too. When you pass your story on to someone else, anyone else, they now have something of a responsibility to your story. And we saw this with early episodes with the philosophies of Paul Recur. And they also share an identity in it. There is reflection that occurs in judgment here, and I don't necessarily mean negative, pitying judgment. Sartre talks a lot about this in his work Existentialism and Humanism. The existential premise of existence precedes essence opens up humans as autonomous beings of absolute free will to a lot of possible actions, even if we're in a limited subset of circumstances. While there are many things we can't do, there are a lot of things we can, and in particular a lot of things we can choose to think. But because we are all man in the same species of creature, each action made by individual man becomes a real example of the essence of man as a whole. And if you think about that, that's a lot of responsibility. That means that people like Hitler, and yes, I realize these conversations always go that route, don't they? The actions taken and the choices he made reflect on what is a possibility for all persons of the species. This is why it's so incredibly dangerous to dehumanize people in our species. By saying things like, Hitler wasn't a human, he was a monster, or Hitler was an animal, not a man, we are failing to recognize the fact that his decisions are an ever-present possibility for each and every single one of us. It's why we're so shocked by ourselves, our family, our friends, sometimes. We get it in our head that, oh, they could never do that, or start making excuses for ourselves. That action I did? Yeah, that wasn't me. I'm sorry. But no, they did do that. He did do those horrible things, and that was you that did those things you're now in hindsight ashamed of. Those we all are always possibilities by virtue of the beings and the things that we are. We are all capable of them. Those choices invariably exist. Some people actually make them, which means they're always potential. 
which is why we have an enormous responsibility to each other in our actions. Each action we think we make alone in isolation is never an act in alone in isolation. Each time we make those decisions, we're further defining the real capacities of this species that we are. We define each other in the process. So here, Paul D. now has to realize that Seed's story is his own as well. Her choice could easily have been his in that circumstance. Maybe his own decisions this whole time haven't been good ones, but have also provided definitions for people in those situations. When Stampede offers him his story, the snapping of the woman's neck and running, as a way to sympathize with the situation, to show that everyone's got a terrible secret that slavery forced them to make, or did it? I guess that's the question. But they definitely do make those decisions and are capable of exerting will to do so. But Paul D. has to recognize that leaving Seed and passing judgment on her was pretty bold of him, right? I mean, we'll see. The book ends on an important statement here. Paul D. asks Stamp after all this, after listing all of these horrible things he's experienced firsthand and now has been forced in, in some way to experience through himself, through others, through Seed, at second hand, how much is a person supposed to take? And Stamp aptly answers, all he can. I will say this, I cannot identify here on the same level, and I know I've been kind of harping on that point, but I can empathize with the sentiment of being overwhelmed to the point of inaction. Like I said earlier, there are so many ethical considerations that we have to take into account these days. While I was walking yesterday, my husband and I were talking about this, and I had to tell him the story of Beloved, so it was really applicable. Uh, there are just an overwhelming amount of scary things happening right now. This pandemic is really only part of it. But also the waves of police brutality, the murders, the genocides that are happening throughout the world, the mistreatment of immigrants, sex trafficking, slave labor, political and generational ethnic wars and conflicts, economic insecurity, food insecurity, fears and malaise of all kinds. And it feels like every single day we wake up and we're piled higher and higher with these things that we have to think about and care about. And what are we going to do? What can we as single people do? And we ask ourselves, how much more can we take? And the Stamp's answer, all we can. When will it be enough? When will it explode? Where is the rupture point? I really don't know. All I know is that we can't just keep dividing ourselves into these separate communities or ideals. Because what that other they over there are capable capable of doing uh, that we label as not ourselves. Whatever they do and are capable of doing, so are we. They define us as much as we define them. And as Stamp said in earlier chapters and as Paul D's story here reflects about the definer versus the defined, now plagued by the contents of his tobacco tin, he wondered how much difference there really was between before school teacher and after. Garner called and announced them men but only on Sweet Home and by his leave. Was he naming what he saw or creating what he did not? That was the wonder of Sixo and of even Hal. It was always clear to Paul D. that those two men were men, whether Gardner said so or not. It troubled him that, concerning his own manhood, he could not satisfy himself on that point. Oh, he did manly things, but was that Gardner's gift or his own will? What would he have been anyway before Sweet Home without Garner?
Suppose Garner woke up one morning and changed his mind, took the word away. Would they have run then? Luckily, at least in a historical sense, we continue to be definers, at least from hindsight and a temporal distance. We have made the slave owners the defined as well. And hopefully, at least to some degree, that defining has been unkind. And yet we still have major inequality issues, both class and race, in this country that shows the whole definer and defined problem. The privilege of being the definer and having it stick. Here we are. I struggle with coherence. I'm not sure coherence exists here. I feel like I leave every episode feeling this way. Next week, I, I need to confront whether I'm even doing the right thing in telling these stories. Luckily, they're Toni Morrison, so I can speak her words without throwing in my own. Um, but I'll discuss some of the ethicality and the challenges with these philosophical ideas. I'm Stacey Cabrera, and I'll see you next week for the last episode of this series. Fill in the details. <laughs>